Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. You guys ready for this? Daniel 7, turn your Bibles, Daniel 7. We're going to the second part of Daniel 7. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, whenever you enter in second, you know, it's like walking into a, a uh, show that your spouse is watching and all of a sudden you're asking questions like, what's going on here? And you're like, watch it from the beginning. So I'm sorry if you were not here last week. You might not know what's going on, but we're digging into some really great stuff here in Daniel chapter 7. Before we begin, I want to encourage you to come next week. My dad's going to be preaching here. And uh, he's going to be preaching on prayer. One of the things that we talked about last uh, in our During Vision Sunday was about being more praying and evangelistic church. And so next week, a lot of things that are going to be happening that we're going to be introducing, starting with prayer. So please come out next week and learn more how you can be a part of some of the prayer initiatives that we're doing. But my dad will be specifically preaching on prayer, and I hope that you will be encouraged by that next week. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 through 28. We are in the middle of this chapter Daniel has had this dream. He has had these four beasts in this dream. It corresponds to Daniel chapter 2 with the statue. And uh, now, you know, we, we, we looked last week focusing on the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man that is sitting on a throne. Because before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of who these beasts are and all these kinds of things that, that we're going to look at today, we needed to establish the foundation that God is reigning and God will reign on his throne, and nothing can stop that, and nothing can thwart that. And that's what we looked at last week. So with that foundation, Daniel has this vision, and the vision is of this lion with wings who's given a heart or a mind of a man. It's and he's the bear. It's got three ribs in its mouth, and it's raised up on one side, and then there's there's the, the leopard that has wings on its back and four heads, and then this fourth beast that is beyond description. And Daniel really wants to know more about this. And so, so after this vision of, of the throne room of God, he approaches this angel that is there to, to find out more about this fourth beast. So let's look at in verse 15. It says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So just like as we read these things, we might have questions. We might be concerned about what's going on. Daniel has the same thing. Look at verse 16. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So that is... That, that is a summer, that's a great summary statement in these two verses of Daniel chapter 7. These four beasts are four kings, but we remember that for the Most High, God Most High, that the, that the saints, his, the people that are part of his kingdom, will receive his kingdom. So there's this clash of kingdoms right in the beginning that this angel tells him about. Look at, look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. 
And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, in all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. A lot of, lot of crazy stuff going on here. What does this mean? What, what is the interpretation of these, these four creatures that we're reading about today? And so as, we're, as we read through this passage, I'm going to share with you the questions that I have on, these, on, on this passage. And, and, and most people, when they're trying to interpret this, are trying to interpret these questions. The first question is this, who are the four beasts in the kingdoms that they represent, right? Like that's what we want to know. Daniel wants to know who those four kingdoms are. The second question is this, these 10 horns that, be, that are 10 kings and the little horn that follows that, like who are they? How is that? What's going on there? So that's the second question. Who, what are, who are the ten horns and the little horn? And then the third question is, is the three and a half years figurative or literal? So if you, again, look down in the bottom of chapter uh, or verse 25. It says a time, times, and a half a time. So that's a year, two years, and, and, uh, and, a, and a half year. So is that a figurative time period or is it a literal time period? Fourth question is, how much of this prophecy has been fulfilled? Are, are all of these four beasts, have they already come through? And, and this, what Daniel we're talking about is past history that we're looking back to. Is there still something that has yet to be fulfilled in our time today? And then lastly, the last question is, why does this matter? Why does this matter to us? 2022, in the United States of America, what in the world does Daniel 7 have to do with us today? Now, before we answer these questions, I want us to go back to an idea I shared last week with all of you. And the idea was this, that when it comes to prophetic and apocalyptic scripture, we want to focus on the things that make sense and that are clear. There are some very clear principles that are in this text that we want to highlight and prioritize. There are other things in this text that there's just a variety of opinions, or I should say a variety of interpretations of this, that have nothing to do with someone's spiritual maturity or how much they love God. For example, I was doing some studying this week, and I was reading from a certain perspective, and, and I shared this weeks ago when we looked at Daniel chapter 2, as Daniel 2 parallels Daniel 7. And the four views I gave when I was sharing that sermon was, you know, we have the the dispensational premillennialists, they believe in a rapture and a seven-year tribulation period. Uh, they take a lot of the things that are mentioned here literally. 
And then you have the historic premillennialists that believe, they believe that Jesus is going to come back and reign, but some of the, some of the prior events, there's not necessarily a, a set seven-year tribulation period. It could be just an extended period of time. And then there's the, uh, the amillennialists, that they take a lot of these numbers and images as figurative and they're being, as, as being fulfilled, and they may be fulfilled in the future at some level, but, but they mostly have been fulfilled. And then the postmillennialists that believe that we can usher in the kingdom with our activity and our beliefs. And so I went through all of that and I shared with you where I was at. But I was reading, I was doing some studying this week on, on some interpretation things in the text. And one of those guys, someone I was reading that had one of those four viewpoints said something like, well, this is what we believe, even though these people say they don't believe in that, but it's because we are so mature that we believe these things. It's because we love God more that we believe these things. And I'll, just be, I'll be honest with you, that just turns me off. Because let me tell you something, there's some godly people that love Jesus that disagree upon the interpretation of some of these. I, I'm going to be honest with you, there's some things that I, will, I believe that I can be clear about this morning. There's things I'll share with you that I lean towards. And there will be things I will tell you this morning that I'm not quite sure what I believe in this moment. But here's what I know. Let's focus in on what is clear and then what is not clear, we hold open-handed. We have humility, knowing that good people can disagree upon these things. And in the 35 minutes I've been given, we're not going to all walk out of this room being like, we got it! We figured it all out! All right? Books have been written. Movies have been made that are horrible. But still, we're not going to figure it all out today. All right? And when I say horrible, it's just the acting quality. It has nothing to do with what I believe. Well, anyways... Let's answer these questions, shall we? The first question, who are these four beasts? Now, there's two different major interpretations on who the four beasts are. It's either, it's either Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, or it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. I believe it's the second one. I'm pretty sure about that, especially when you look at the, the descriptions of these things. Babylon, the, the, the lion that was given the wings... The, the feathers are plucked, given the heart of a man. Uh, it, you see this beast become man-like. Very, very, uh, it, it parallels descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar what happened to him in chapter 4. The, the media Persian empire is the bear that has the three ribs in it. They were, and one's leaned up on its side, signifying that Persian, as, even though it was, a, it was two kingdoms coming together, the Persian empire was a little bit stronger than the Median empire, and they conquered three kingdoms when they conquested and did their thing. Then you have Greece, which, which you have, it's Alexander the Great, and the four heads represent the four kingdoms that came out of the Greek empire after uh, Alexander the Great died. And then you have this fourth beast, which corresponds to the, the, the bottom layer of the statue here. Remember the iron statue of the, the bottom of it. It's described, this beast is described as having iron teeth, right? So there's some parallels there. And we know in Daniel chapter 2 is that that's when, and during the fourth kingdom, is when the rock came that was cut out not by any human hand and smashed the statue, came, became fine dust. That signified the coming of Jesus. And so I believe that, obviously we know that it was during, this, during the empire of Rome that Jesus came. So I believe that those are the four, the four beasts represent these four kingdoms. That's question number one. Question number two, who are the ten horns and the little horn? Now there are three major viewpoints of this. There's probably 17,000, but there's three major ones that we're going to talk about this morning. The first option is, this, is, this is, represents the, the Roman emperors. 
And the little horn is Vespasian, who actually put down three emperors uh, during the year. During, there was a certain time period, uh, right around 69 AD, where, where Vespasian uh, was attacking Jerusalem, and then he put down these four emperors and became the ultimate emperor. And some people believe that, was, that this prophecy was fulfilled during that time period. Another perspective is that the ten horns represent the ten nation kingdoms that came out of the fall of Rome. When the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, there was about 10 kingdoms that, that, that came out of the conglomeration. And the little horn was the Roman Catholic Church that put down three of those kingdoms and became a major influence post the fall of Rome. The Reformers loved that perspective. Because they thought, you know, they thought that the Pope was, was Satan and Antichrist and all kinds of stuff. And so that was a very predominant view uh, right during the, the beginning of the Reformation. And then another perspective, another major perspective, is that these ten horns represent ten future kings, and that little horn is a future Antichrist. So as you can see, some of these are the past, some of them are the future. Which one is the right one? I'll tell you later. So, third question. Is the three and a half years figurative or literal? I'll be honest with you. When I was beginning my study this week, I would lean towards figurative. Towards the end of my week, I leaned towards literal. I stand here to you this morning and say, I don't know. But I know this, I'm not going to hell because I don't get this wrong. Right? Like, like you kind of know there's certain things that if you get wrong, it's a big deal. This isn't that big of a deal. It may be literal. It may be figurative. Uh, but for whatever it is, the main point is saying that the, that the persecution that the saints are going under is only for a, a specific period of time. It's not forever. The fourth question, how much of this prophecy has been fulfilled? Now, that goes back to question number two. And, and in order to answer that, this question, I want us to look at another passage of Scripture in, Re, in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 13. I want you to see how much Revelation 13 parallels Daniel chapter 7. In order to answer this question, I think we have to look at this passage. And so, Revelation 13, so many parallels between what we just read and what is in this passage in the first 10, 10 verses. All right, so I'm going to read this. And I saw beasts rising out of the sea, that's parallel number one, with ten horns and seven heads and seven diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. There's the ten horns again. And, and, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, its mouth like a lion. So the three beasts that we see in chapter 7 are conglomerations of this fourth beast we see here. Uh, and, and, to the, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon represents Satan. It always represents Satan. Whenever you see the dragon represented in Scripture or a serpent, that signifies Satan. So we know that Satan is behind this, this fourth beast that is in Daniel chapter 7. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Very same parallel. Attacking the saints, Three and a half years, it was given authority to, to do this attack against the saints. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war with the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, given it over every tribe, people, and language, and nation. 
And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So, is the, which is true? Which, which the, who are the four, or who are the ten, ten horns and the little horn? I believe that, that is, it, is, is all this past or is it future? And my answer is yes. You know why? Because the, the, what John is doing here, there's a lot of, again, John is, pulls a lot from Daniel. A lot of apocalyptic literature here. That's what they're doing. They're making hyperlinks between Daniel and Revelation. But what I believe that Daniel and John are doing is they are setting a, a typological pattern for the saints and for the people of God to understand this. That this fourth beast that is introduced in Daniel 7 will always be will always be coming up over and over and over again. That the world system is, yes, past, it is present, and it is future. That, that these, I, I believe, will there, be a, will there be something in the future that resembles something like this? Yeah, I believe that there will be. Well, is it there's something in the past that resembled this? Yes, absolutely, there has been. And so what that, what that means to us is that we don't get so caught up in, oh, it's already been fulfilled, or oh, we haven't yet seen it. The point is, there's always going to be a little horn making war with God and the people of God saying, I want my way. It's always going to be happening. And, and so, so what, what does that matter for us today? It matters for us because look at verse 10 of Revelation chapter 13. If anyone is to be taken captive, or sorry, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must, must be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The point of this whole thing is that we would learn how to make sure we learn how to thrive in the midst of opposition. And that when kingdoms are clashing, the kingdom of God, we looked last week at the kingdom of God, that God is reigning on the throne. And when there's someone else that wants to make war with the Most High and have their way on the earth, there's going to be a clash of kingdoms. And what happens is you and I are in the middle of it. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how will we thrive in the midst of these clashing kingdoms? And the way we do that is through faithfulness. The main idea I want to leave you with this morning is this, that you can thrive, you can thrive in Babylon when kingdoms are clashing through faithfulness. It mentions endurance here, endurance and faith. That's a great way of describing what, what faithfulness is. That when this battle is going on before us, we have to see our, we have to have a perspective and understanding that, that I've been called my responsibility that God has given to me is not necessarily to try to wrestle power between, you know, you know, listen, it's between God and the little horn. And you and I are caught in the middle, and the, what we can control is our faithfulness to God in the midst of opposition. That's it. That's what you and I can control. And so how do we, how do we build this faithfulness in our lives? There's three things that we can do to build faithfulness in our lives, that we can endure through this. The first one is we must expect 
conflict. Number one, we have to expect conflict. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, what you see is a beast, a serpent that's described as a beast that, 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 that tempts and deceives man and woman to come and make their own way. And what you see in, in Genesis chapter 3 is the way of the beast to make man more like animals. But what, and we saw that, that played out in, in Daniel chapter 4. And it's the whole reason why these beasts are used to represent human kingdoms because it's saying the, the, the moment that people do what we want to do, the moment we want to break away from God and do our own thing, the more beast-like we will become. But the more we try to find ourselves and to serve the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the more we will be made into the fulfill and the image of God that we were made to be. And we see that in, as the Son of Man is described as the one who will inherit the kingdom from, from, uh, from, the, from the ancient of days, and so the, or has been given to the, to the Son of Man. So this, this parallel or this contrast between man and beast is pronounced, and we see it from Genesis to Revelation. See, you and I were born into a war zone, a conflict that began in Genesis 3, and it will end in Revelation chapter 20, and we don't get to decide of whether or not we live in it or not. It's, it's happening. It's there. And what you see, go back to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to see this. In Daniel chapter 7, we see a term that is used four times in this passage to reference to who God is. We saw Ancient of Days last week, and midway through this text, we see Most High. Verse, 16, verse 18 says, But the saints of the Most High. If you look again in verse 22, in judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Verse 25, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Over and over again, Daniel is saying, Most High. There's a reason why we have El Elyon. That's what that word, that's what that name means in Hebrew. El Elyon means God Most High. See, anytime anyone, whether it is a person, a corporation, a nation, a group, it doesn't matter who they are, the moment they look at God and say, we want to do our own thing. We're, we're, we, want, we don't want God in our lives. We don't want God's ways. We don't want God's laws. We want to live our lives on our own. That is an attack and affront against God Most High. And what will happen in that moment is that group, that person, that tribe, that nation will become more beast-like. And see, you and I are in the middle of that. You and I live in these, these systems of, of, of beast and God and what we find ourselves in, the question is, do we understand that? And do we expect that? Then when we understand, when we walk into the corporate office, when we walk into our schools, when we walk into our neighborhoods, when we, when we engage with other people, that there is a world system that is working. Every time you turn on the television, there's a world system that's trying to tell you what to think and what to believe. And that's one of the common messages we've been saying week after week after week. And all of us, we find ourselves in this clash of kingdoms. And if you are apathetic, and if you are someone who just tries to check out, and tries to bury your head in the sand, and I don't want to deal with it, guess what? You can't ignore it. It's going to be happening all around you. And so, and so we find ourselves in this clash of kingdoms. 
I, many of you know I'm, I'm going uh, back to school and getting my, my master's degree uh, in, in psychology. And I'm getting my degree from a Christian institution, which I, I wanted that Christian perspective studying these things because I, I enjoy the science of psychology. I don't believe in the philosophy of psychology, which is very humanistic. But I, I was, I was, we were assigned something a few weeks ago on a project on transgenderism. And when, I, when I'm talking about this, I just want you to know that, that when it comes to this issue, whenever these moral issues come up, we need to remember a couple of things. That we always need to show love and dignity to every human being, right? But in this class I was taking, we had some things to read over. And, and, and the things that we read over is there's three ma- major ways that you can deal with this issue of transgenderism through the lens of Christianity. The first lens is through the lens of integrity. The belief that you know, God has created male and female that our gender is sacred before God, and that we don't get to determine our gender. God, we are knit together in our mother's womb, and he's the one that determines gender. Biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. That's the integrity lens. The second lens is the disability lens. The idea that we see these people as having really a a mental disorder that needs help to understand the struggle they're going through. And then the, the third lens is the lens of diversity and celebration. And so I was, I was writing my, my response to this issue, and there's 18 of us in the class. And uh, I, I put myself as a blend between number two, we, we need to have compassion towards these people because they're struggling with this issue, but also not sacrificing the integrity of God's word. And I was only one of three people in this class at a Christian institution that had anything about the lens of integrity. Almost all of them, had some level of celebration of diversity in our group. And, and let me just say, that's, that's, not, that's, that's wrong. It's not wrong because, it's, it's not wrong because, I, you know, because I, I, I want to be mean to those people who are struggling with that. It's, it's not right because the Word of God teaches something different. And what you and I are faced with, the reason why so many of those people I went to class with that are self-professed Christians, that, go to, that are a part of our churches today, that have those beliefs, is not because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're stupid or we're better than them or you know, you know, this is a level of pride that we, we've got all, we got figured out and they don't. No, no, no. The problem is this. There are so many of us that have viewpoints that are skewed because we've been shaped by the world in our thinking. We have allowed the messages of Hollywood, we've allowed the messages of music, we've allowed the messages and the system of, of Babylon to infect our thinking, and we are, we are Christians today that we will hold fast to the truths of certain things in the Bible, but other ones we will reject because of what it will make us look like in public. That is not the way of God it's not the way of the Most High. We, we should never look at God, at the Most High, and say, you must conform to our standards. There's, there is a conflict going on. It began in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. And you and I are in the middle of it. And the only question we have to ask ourselves is, will we be faithful to God? Will we be faithful to the Most High? Or will we chart our own path? Or will we say, I know better than you do to God? about this area? That's the question we have. Expect conflict. Number two, endure persecution. Endure persecution. 
You know, the Bible is clear both in Daniel and Revelation that the saints will come under attack from this ruler, from this little horn who hates God's, who hates God and hates his followers. In fact, we see this little horn is wanting to take the place of God. The reason why he hates the saints, look at verse 25. He, speaks, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. What does this mean? It means this, that when anyone of any human authority wants to, change, wants to do things that only God can do, if you go all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, what does it say? God is the one who changes times and seasons. So when this, this is being interpreted for us, the most anyone that wants to have a place of God in our lives, that is someone we don't want. I don't care what governmental system or what political party, anytime anyone in human authority says, I will do for you what God used to do for you, we should run 180 degrees the other way. We need to understand who God is. We need to understand that God is the one who gives to us every bit of goodness in our lives. And so when we as people of God reject the authority of man in Babylon's system, what that means is we will come under persecution. It's going to happen. And here's the question I had when I was reading this, because it says, right, that, that, that the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. In fact, it says that they should be given over, right? They'll be given over to this little horn. And I'm thinking this, well, that's, thanks a lot, God. I mean, do I want that? And, and, and I'm thinking about this, I'm like, okay, help me understand, help me understand this, God. How, why would you allow your saints, to come under this kind of persecution. And the reason for that is this. Number one, we always find our answers in Jesus. John chapter 15, we don't have time to look at it, but John 15, when Jesus is in the upper room, he's talking to the disciples, and you know what he tells them? If the world hates me, the world's going to hate you. And when he says the world, he's talking about the world system. And, and, and he basically says this, that, that if the world persecutes me, it's going to persecute everything that they have done to me, everything that I've experienced, you should expect yourself. And for out of the 12 men in that room, 11 of them, except for Judas who hung himself, suffered some level of persecution in their life. Every single one of them. Many of them suffered horrifically and tragically at the hands of people that hated them because they hated Jesus. And so what we have got to be confronted with is that Jesus says, expect persecution. For those of us that have grown up in America where, where the Christian worldview and the Christian morality was at one point mainstream, that comes as a shock to us. Because Christians in the way of Christ was a, was a way of privilege and power in our culture. That is no longer true. And what we have to make sure is this. That our main focus during this transition time, when, when, when Babylon's values are, in, are, are really seeping into our, the culture of our day and age, that we do not get caught up, caught up in the political power game. I'm not against Christians being influencers and, and sharing our values and sharing our morals. That's, I, I think that's important. But let me just say this. If we're so concerned about power and not about faithfulness, we will, we will get distracted in this. It says, it says in 2 Timothy that, that everyone who's, who lives a godly life will be persecuted. 
We are, we are a, a, a very small percentage in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, in the history of Christianity, in every nation. The privilege that Christians have had in this nation is, is not the norm. And if we have to suffer persecution in the future, that, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the world. It means that there's something that, that, that whatever was, was not normal is becoming normal again. What we need to do is make sure that we are faithful in the midst of that. So that's, that's when we are not beyond Jesus. The second reason why I think we, that, Jesus, that God allows this is that it's the truest test of our loyalty and love. It's the truest test of our loyalty and love. When Job was tempted by Satan and when he was attacked by Satan, remember, Job, or remember God's conversation with Job or God's conversation with Satan. Satan said, the only reason that Job loves you and worships you is because of all the good things you've done in his life. You take that away, he'd curse you to your face. And when I read that, you know what that makes me think? That's what God thinks about you. That's what God thinks about you. Oh, take away his money, take away, their, 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 take, take away her children, take away their privilege, take away all the good things in their life, give them some sickness, give them some hardships, give them some, some persecution, take away their friends, they'll curse you to your face, God, because Satan doesn't believe you really love God. Satan only believes you love God for what God can do for you. And the, our test of our faith to show not just the devil, but to the world and even to God himself, is that when we come under attack for our faith, we remain faithful in spite of the persecution. It's one of the greatest ways we show our love and loyalty to God. I was watching a movie for one of my classes. I had to write a paper on a movie. and I, Anytime I can write a paper on a movie and not a book, I love. But uh, I watched this movie. Um, it was called... Uh, Bucket List with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. It's about 10 years old, and I'm going to give some things away, but it's 10 years old, so if you haven't watched it, that's on you. So watching this movie, and it's these two guys uh, that, that are in the hospital. They got cancer, and they, they've been given a terminal diagnosis. They're not going to survive. And Jack Nicholson is this billionaire uh, who's you know, got everything that, that, that wealth can afford, uh, pays for everything and anything, and Morgan Freeman, who's this simple family man, decides to go on this journey with him to experience things. And, and the, the issue of relationships comes up, and, and Morgan Freeman has been faithful to one wife his entire life. In marriage, before marriage, in marriage. And Jack Nicholson cannot believe this is true. And he cannot imagine, you know, only having sex with one woman your entire life. And he just, he's, he's you know, berating him and looking down on him. And there's this moment in the movie where, where Morgan Freeman is, is and this very beautiful place, and Jack Nicholson sends a girl to see, like, what will really happen. This, this woman is beautiful, and she's like, I mean, just the vibe is there, and you're wondering, oh, no, is he going to fall? And you get to this moment where he's got to make a decision of what's happening, and Morgan Freeman says, says to this woman who's trying to seduce him, you know what? I think I'm even going to go up to my room, and he, and he rejects this woman's advance and stays faithful to his wife right? And he gets up to the room, and Jack Nicholson said, I just wasn't sure if it was real or not. You see, it's in those moments, see, when you come under persecution, how do you act? How will you behave? If your livelihood and your life are at stake, will you choose Christ or will you choose yourself? 
And that, that, that future may be ahead of us, may be in this nation. But it's, it's a real situation that Christians across the time span have had to deal with. And may we be found faithful when our time comes. So we need to expect conflict. We need to endure persecution. And lastly, we need to envision the kingdom. We need to envision the kingdom. Notice there's three separate times in Daniel chapter 7 about saying that, showing the saints in relationship to this kingdom. Now, as we see in verses 13 and 14, we see the Son of Man that was presented to, that was given this kingdom. And this kingdom that the Son of Man received, which is Jesus, is now given to the saints. Look at verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Now, I believe those two terms, receiving the kingdom and possessing the kingdom, corresponds with this reality that when Jesus came, he instituted, he began the kingdom of God, though the fullness of the kingdom is not yet seen. So, so what we're in is this in-between world where is it already not yet, right? So, so we have received the kingdom, and one day we will possess the kingdom. We see the same thing in verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. One more time in verse 27. It says, "...in the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole, earth, under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High." We receive, we possess, and we've been given. And this is, this is the reality that you and I live in today. For those of us who find our, 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 our loyalty to God because of our, our love for Him, because of what Christ has done for us, we have received something. We have received a kingdom. That what Jesus Christ won for us on the cross through his death was not just, I, I'm, I'm wiping out their sin account. Like, we love hearing about that. That when Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins, that's a beautiful, wonderful truth. But we also know this, that on the cross, Jesus also conquered Satan. And he has established his authority and his power and his rule over all the earth. And so we, what we need to remember is that when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, that we do not just receive the salvation of our souls, that we don't just have our sin accounts wiped clean, but we have also received this power and this authority from God for the kingdom. What that means is that you and I find ourselves representing, remember I've said this week after week, God is looking for partners and representatives. People who will represent him in the world. We represent a different kingdom. We represent a different system. What that means is we're, we're, not, we're not antagonistic. We don't hate people. When we see people captivated by Babylon's system, we don't hate them. But what we see ourselves is as kingdom agents going into Babylon and saying, there's a better kingdom to belong to. There's a greater king. This king loves you. This king died for you. And he wants you a part of his family and his, and his rule. And it's an invitation not just to have their, their sin account wiped clean, but to enter into a brand new relationship with God that is life-changing. It changes our purpose. It changes our priorities. And what we've got to do is we've got to remember that we are in between something. We have received this kingdom from Jesus, but we do not see the fullness of possessing it. And even though there are times when it feels like, man, Babylon's winning, 
we remember who wins with the scores at the end of the game. You see, I don't care. I've used this illustration before. If I know who wins the game, when my team's losing in the third quarter, I don't care. Right? I'm not stressed out. I'm not worried. I'm not scared. Oh, no, what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen. And God wins. And if I'm united with Christ, his victory is my victory. And I don't have to let the, the, the daily news, I don't have to let the, the movement of, of culture shift and change my hope in Christ. That my hope in God, my hope for the future is settled because of Jesus Christ. A few questions and then we're done. Number one, will faith or fear dictate your choices when there's conflict? When you ent- you've been born into this war zone, and when this war zone that you've been born into flares up before you, are you going to run and hide? Are you going to shrink back in fear? Are you going to keep silent? Or are you going to say, no, this is a part of being alive today. This is part of being a part of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to let faith inform my speech. I'm going to let faith inform my decisions. I'm going to let faith inform my behavior. Or I'm going to let fear You and I don't get the choice of whether or not to live in conflict. We only have the choice of how we will handle the conflict. Number two, will your love for Jesus sustain you through persecution? Will your love for Jesus sustain you through persecution? We need to remember, we're in just a few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. And it's it's this time that we remember the body and the blood of Jesus, the death and the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. And if, if, the, if those details are merely knowledge or factual things for you, and there's no love that you have for God because of that, let me encourage you to make, there, there's a decision you need to make. There, there, there's a commitment to Christ, because what God wants more than anything is your love. And it's only the love of Christ, it's only understanding His love for us because of His sacrifice for us that will keep us enduring and faithful to the end. Will your love, will your, will your love for Jesus sustain you through persecution? And then lastly, number three, is your hope in a future kingdom filling you with joy now? Is your hope for a future kingdom filling you with joy now? Or are you letting other things rob you of joy?